Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast that is produced at the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs from Wayne State University in the heart of the funkiest town in America, and that is Detroit, Michigan. My name is Dan Galadner, and I'll be your host today, as well as Troy Eller English, who is the whiz of audacity to create great audio sounds for us. So pay attention to the end of this podcast. How are you doing, Troy? I'm fantastic. How are you, Dan? I'm just fine. How's your school year going? Um, well, you have a kid. <laughs> school's going on. I can tell you all about my experience with teenagers in schools. Um, today is picture day. Oh, see? There you uh, go. You know, with a four-year-old uh, who does, doesn't have her pictures taken until almost lunchtime. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how they turn out. I'm sure it will be lovely. They're always the cutest, aren't they? She's adorable. Did she start with a bow in the hair this morning? No. Did she start with anything in their hair? No. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> you know it's going to be gone <laughs> in about an hour. <laughs> so the reason I bring up schools is today's podcast, we talk with Matt Kautz, a doctoral student at Teachers College, Columbia University. And he was here working on his dissertation that is titled Punishing Promise, School Discipline in the Era of Desegregation. Now, school discipline in the United States has been used in schools ever since the beginning of public education, from the verbal um, reprimands to corporal punishment, detention, in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, fines, the whole thing. And many studies, papers, and talks have been given about this part of education history. But Matt's study is a look at the unprecedented rise in suspensions and expulsions in urban schools during the era of desegregation. He will be doing archival digs. Uh, he did some in Detroit. He'll be doing it in Boston and Louisville and looking at the actions of punishment prior to, during, and after desegregation. Now, not only the practices, but he will be looking at the codes, the teacher responses, as well as the community's responses to this rise of discipline. What he's hoping to have uh, a better understanding is of urban schools and the rise of, of the carceral state and the mass incarceration. So let's hear from Matt because he has a lot more information that I just gave you. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing well. Um, we have a big conversation to talk about today about your dissertation. Yeah, excited. Yeah. So um, why don't you tell us about how you got interested in this research and how, how your dissertation is coming? So the start actually kind of came in my first year's teaching. So I started teaching at Detroit and or in Detroit at Cody High School. And I was just kind of amazed at the amount of students uh, that were suspended. And it was kind of crazy that, you know, we're supposed to educate kids and there are so many students who are being pushed out of the school. So I started thinking about, you know, why did this start to happen? When did it become that we were talking about, you know, quote unquote, these kids and the things that they needed to succeed in such a negative way? And so after I taught in Detroit, I taught in Chicago for a little bit and I taught in a different school that had a little bit more of a regimented disciplinary system. And even though there were, you know, some things that were an improvement were different, there was still this concern that we're excluding kids regularly from learning. And that doesn't seem like what we're supposed to be doing as educators. And so I really wanted to start out looking, you know, how did modern disciplinary systems in school kind of come to evolve? Um, and so 
in the fall of my first year um, in my program, I took this class that kind of reframed things for me a little bit to not just think about discipline, but actually think about the actions of punishment. And so started seeing suspensions and expulsion not as part of a disciplinary system, but as a punishment mm -hmm. system. Um, and then from there, it was like, okay, well, when did this become the form of punishment? When did we move from corporal punishment to exclusionary measures? And in a very <laughs> non-academic way, I went to um, the Google, you know, Ngram to see when the vernacular of school suspension increased. And I noticed around the early 1960s, it becomes more and more prevalent and kind of balloons in the 70s and 80s. And I'm like, huh. Mm -hmm. There's some kind of interesting stuff in schools going on in the 1960s. And so I start looking through some historical newspapers and I see the rise of suspensions and the disproportionate uh, dissemination of those suspensions just balloon during desegregation. And there are a few contemporary reports that document this change. In 1975, Hugh releases um, a document that talks about the quote you know new segregation struggle which is a student push out through suspension and tracking within desegregated schools um, and so I started looking okay where are the cities that this is well documented because one of the things that's really difficult about documenting or uh, excuse me researching school suspensions is that schools didn't really keep that data hmm. and a lot of schools didn't even until the 1990s, but more in the 2000s where it became a mandate. So it was finding what cities had strong documentation of this rise in suspensions. And so Louisville, Detroit, and Boston kind of emerge as these cities that are well-documented to be able to understand what's going on. Interesting. Why are these three cities documenting so heavily about it? Um, so part of it definitely has to do with the court order. So in a lot of these cases, student discipline actually becomes um, part of the judge's orders and part of what the plaintiffs are, um, you know, attesting as part of the problem with desegregation. So um, in Detroit, Judge Damasco in 1975 or 1976 um, charges Detroit Public Schools with issuing a uniform student code of conduct as a response to this problem. Um, Judge Garrity in Boston um, does the same thing, although it's not till 1980 that um, that new student code of conduct emerges. Um, and then I think also there was an intention, um, less so in Detroit, but more so in Louisville, Boston, of the local newspapers paying attention to this and documenting it because the numbers increased so significantly. Um, what was the Supreme Court decision? Goss? Gosfi Lopez. Uh, with Gosfi Lopez, what didn't that was over due process for students, right? Correct. Um, how did that change the landscape? So this has actually been something that I've talked with a, a few other historians about, and what I've found so far is it doesn't really change anything. Really? So Gosfi Lopez kind of dictates that students are entitled to rights of due process, and so these student codes of conduct that emerge. Um, do something really interesting. They frame the code of conduct as students' rights and responsibilities. And the responsibilities come first. And so if students don't adhere to these responsibilities, in some instances, these code of conduct says they lose those rights. In other instances, there'll be a long description of what due process is for students, what they're owed, and then it says, but 
that's at the discretion of the school as necessary. So even though there's the Supreme Court ruling in actions in classrooms, um, we don't actually see that decision carried out. Interesting. Because I was thinking that it would be, there'd be more bureaucracy by the schools keeping track of the due process. So this is really interesting. So there's one other historian who's kind of looked at the history of suspension in schools, uh, Judith Kafka's The History of Zero Tolerance, and not necessarily related to Gossip Lopez, but she makes a similar argument that um, more bureaucracy is created because discipline becomes centralized because of all these concerns about disproportionate suspensions. And so in some ways, this is why we see an increase because teachers lose that responsibility. But at least in these cities during desegregation, what we see is that the majority of offenses are for pretty benign, I shouldn't say benign things, but things that we wouldn't think would be an automatic suspension, like bringing a weapon or having drugs on campus. They're rather suspensions for things at the teacher's discretion, disruption of a classroom, whatever that might mean, um, you know, acting inappropriately in the hallway whatever that might mean. Um, and so, again, we don't necessarily see that court decision due process playing out. Actually, in the archive yesterday, it was really interesting. In 1976, it looks like in Detroit that it becomes a requirement for students to have their student ID to access the building. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have their student ID, they're suspended for a day. And this parent wrote a letter saying, like, why was my child sent home because he forgot his student ID. And so in the correspondence in the archive, the next letter that you see is from the principal to the staff, not talking about changing the policy, but saying, hey, remind students they have to have their ID, otherwise we're going to suspend them. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> if, if My kids would be suspended every day. <laughs> I don't think I would have ever seen a day of school if I had to bring my student ID to be able You're to be right, there. Right. So, so there's been lots of research, lots of studies been put out. Um, what is so unique about your research? Yeah, so a lot of the work that's been on the, you know, what we call the school-to-prison pipeline has often been sociological in nature. And it kind of looks at um, student disciplinary policies and connection to um, police and eventually incarceration ahistorically. We see a lot of stuff in the late 80s and the 90s with the rise of zero tolerance policies. But I think what my work does is say, actually, we're seeing the seeds of this significantly earlier. Um, and we're seeing it in connection with a huge movement in urban school systems, that being desegregation. Um, I think the other thing that my work is kind of doing is fusing this emerging and growing body of literature of carceral historiography and the history of education and thinking where do these things interact because it really is important if you think about the profile of those who are often arrested um, what ages they are um, obviously race is a huge factor in that urban schools have a significant or serving a significant population of those who are coming under increasing police power through this time um, both through local police presence and federal funds, which are augmenting that local police presence. And so what I'm trying to do is say, hey, we have these things going on where students are being pushed out of schools at the same time that their communities are coming under significant police presence and that we are turning to incarceration as a mode 
of handling criminal behavior rather than more ameliorative things. So this actually just makes complete sense with example of Detroit with uh, stress exactly. in, in the police department. Um, do you find similar actions in Boston, Louisville as Detroit had stress? Yeah, so it's, some of the differences that emerge um, are not necessarily that programs are completely different, but the intensity in some ways, right? So Boston and Louisville don't have something that is as, I don't know what the right word here is. Uh, intense? <laughs> <laughs> Militaristic? I don't know. <laughs> as stress, but there are task forces that are being developed under local police at this time to find, one might argue, create crime um, and respond to that. Um, in all cities, you see larger responses to concerns about drug use and drug abuse, especially by juveniles. And so, again, you don't have stress in Boston, but you have similar programs and you have similar funding going into things like the Youth Activities Commission, which is saying, okay, who are the problem kids in the neighborhood? And we can talk about how problem is determined and what are we doing to bring them under our watch? Um, I was just reading also to prepare for our you know, interview here that um, it was basically in Flint, Michigan, I think in it was either the 60s or early 70s when the first uh, usage of uh, actually police officers in the schools, mm. armed police officers um, in the schools. And then it doubled and tripled and quadrupled throughout the whole country. So do you see a correlation also with the armed guards within the schools talking with these uh, uh, task force and keeping an eyes on this kid who's just suspended or we'll keep an eye do they have do you think that they had this kind of communication network going on? So I haven't found it in um, Detroit and Louisville yet, but in Boston you actually see in the planning for desegregation, who are the students that we think are student leaders that can help us facilitate this process? And who are those who are likely to be delinquent or are likely to cause issues so that the police officers that are coming into schools to facilitate desegregation have picked out who these students who might be troublemakers are? Um, and again, we can talk about what constitutes yeah. a troublemaker and in whose eyes, but you do see this... Um, relationship between these different branches. And actually, one thing that I found yesterday in the archive, which I have to know more about that I don't know yet, is um, so uh, Law Enforcement Assistance Act is what allowed the federal government to give these local police forces um, and communities federal funds to create programs. And so DPS was trying to work with these funds and the Office um, of Law Enforcement Assistant Act to get funds for their alternative education program, mm -hmm. which would be under the auspices of the police and DPS. Because to receive those LEAA funds, it had to be connected to local law enforcement. Gotcha. So, all right, so you are <laughs> digging deep into our archives. You're finding some neat stuff. What collections are you using here? Um, so, so far, I've spent the most time with the uh, DPS Community Relations Division archive. And what that has just been really fascinating to see because it's, you know, DPS connecting or trying to connect with the community. Um, and you see the kind of ideologies and cultural pathologies that are defining how we're going to deal with student behavior, how we're going to address what they call, quote, like changing schools. 
Um, and at the same time, you also see this interesting conversation about what it means to work with the community, because as it's documented in that collection, the Detroit teaching force is not necessarily living in the communities that they're teaching or even living in the city. So what does it mean to have this community relationship? And so there's proposed, well, maybe we create a community outpost or we turn the school into a community center that's operating all these days to try to better facilitate these relationships. Um, but given that there might be some silences in that collection because it's from DPS, I'm still trying to figure out what was the success and mm -hmm. kind of what was the rollout for this. Um, also looking at the Human Rights Department um, and their collections, and that has been really helpful in seeing how uh, a community organization kind of worked to address these issues of discipline in school um, and the things that they were successful at and the things that they ended up not being as successful in implementation. Um, so for instance, they effectively convinced DPS to adopt a grievance procedure uh, for parents and students for their grievances with the school um, that's laid out and kind of four steps that they can follow. But in some of the things directly related to students' rights, um, there's not as much success, okay. um, at least so far. We'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then I'm really excited today to get into the Wayne State Monitoring Commission yeah. and seeing um, kind of a more in-depth look of what was actually going on in the schools and then getting into the DFT records and seeing, you know, what were teachers having to say about this because there's some echoes of their voices in the adoption of these policies and some of the other collections I've looked at. Right, right. Cool. One more question, though. Sure. Got one more question. Um, two more questions. All right, I, I read the study that Larkin did in 79, mm -hmm. all right, uh, which basically says part of the problem with the increase of discipline in Milwaukee was due to the fact that there was a discrepancy between culture ethnicity between students and students as well as teacher students. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that as well with what your research is? Uh, specifically, you just mentioned you know, the teacher's voice yeah. uh, had some input on what's going on. What were the, what were the teachers doing? Did you, do you see a discrepancy going on there? Yeah, that's actually something that I've spent quite a time, bit of time working on because a lot of contemporary actors at the time, they frame this um, essentially cultural dissonance between teachers and students uh, as a large part of the problem. But, you know, and I think the same thing can be said about that Larkin article, what that cultural dissonance, dissonance is, is never actually stated. It's just kind of assumed, so if there's a white teacher and there's a black student, that there's some kind of disconnect there, which is what's going to lead to disproportionate suspensions. And so, you know, I mentioned the collection kind of looking at these cultural pathologies and this idea of kids coming from culturally deficit backgrounds. And so when you start to see that kind of language and emerge, I think it's not necessarily a cultural dissonance as kind of overt and sometimes less overt racism that we're seeing working here. And so I don't know as if I've come to the conclusion of how to wrestle with that because I don't think you can, can, you can discount the racism that we see leading to these disproportionate suspensions because oftentimes it's schools, or excuse me, not schools, but teachers who are making these decisions, but also the systematic failures that allow for students to be protected when they're charged with a particular offense. Um, 
you know, in one of the student codes of conduct, if they present their side of the story and the administration doesn't believe them, well, they have the right to an attorney, but if they can't get an attorney, then we'll just move on. For a lot of kids, getting an attorney for, you know, doing something in school is not something that's feasible. Um, So I don't, I don't know if I'm totally answering your question, but that's kind of the ways I've been thinking about it. You gave a good enough question, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, you just, you already answered the other question that you're not finding much on the students, so. Yeah, I I really want to see more of the student voices, but I think um, that might have to be something that's done through oral histories. Um, And so there's a couple of organizations in Detroit and in Boston, uh, one organization in Louisville that I think there might be a contact person to find former students uh, to get that story. Okay, cool, cool. And that was Matt Kautz, a doctoral student from Teacher College, Columbia University, who did some archival research here at the Ruther Library. He was able to come to Detroit on the Albert Shanker Fellowship Travel Grant. This grant is sponsored by the American Federation of Teachers to assist academics in higher education to get to Detroit to conduct research with the AFT collections or related education collections. So like Matt used uh, a lot of AFT collections here while he was here, and also the collections from the Detroit Public School Records and some Wayne State University archives all related to education for his dissertation. The grant application will be up very soon uh, for next year, so check it out on our website, ruther.wame.edu backslash opportunity. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Uh, We talked with Matt Cutts. Is it Cuts? It is K-A-U-T-Z. Cuts. 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 Matt. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, if we got your name wrong. <laughs>Is there going to be auto-tuning for my voice? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. We'll even throw a little K-pop in there for you. Oh, okay. All right. So. <laughs> so this has actually been something that I've talked with a, a few other historians about, and what I've found so far is it doesn't really change anything. And so I really wanted to start out looking, you know, how did modern disciplinary systems in school kind of come to evolve? Um, And so in the fall of my first year um, in my program, I took this class that kind of reframed things for me a little bit to not just think about discipline, but actually think about the actions of punishment.